My name is Elliot Park, and I own Columbia Pressworks. <clears throat> and uh, we live here in Tennessee, Columbia, Tennessee. I hail from Texas. We um, not born and raised Texan, but I was I was born in California, and we moved to Texas when I was two years old. So I consider myself kind of more Texan than anything. But yeah, we moved up here to Tennessee, and I started doing leather in Texas. Um, but stopped doing that for a number of years. And then when we moved up to Tennessee, I got the itch to do it again. So here we are. I actually am a graphic designer. Um, that's my main forte. Um, it's what puts, you know, puts the money, puts the bread on the table, brings in the money the most, but I also do several things and I'm actually a songwriter. Uh, that's why I moved to Nashville or moved to Tennessee. I was coming up here. That's been probably 15 years. Um, since I was really, really busy doing it, uh, writing country music and stuff. Oh, between 2003 and 2010, I, I came up to Tennessee, up to Nashville quite often, several times a year to write. And, and, uh, and then that kind of played out, but, but I, I developed a lot of friendships, uh, in this area. And so, um, but yeah, the leather stuff, I've always loved leather, always kind of played with it and toyed with it. Never, never in really a professional manner. Um, and, and not really, not really traditionally either. I, I, I would do a lot of, a lot of stamping and some, some tooling, uh, but not, not any stitching or any kind of, uh, advanced leather work, you know? Um, and I still don't actually. So most, most of what I do is just imprinting, embossing, and, um, you know, I don't do a whole lot of, uh, fancy, tricky stitching work or any, anything like that. I actually started a company in Texas um, in 2013 with a, with a, a another person. And, um, <clears throat> we started, um, doing these large, we started, started actually doing maps and things. We were, that's, that was our plan is to do cool maps. And, and we started doing that, but it took a, a, a bit more work to, to figure that out, um, than I anticipated the way I'm doing it now. Um, I never really could figure it out people just started coming to us saying, Hey, can you do this image or this logo or, you know, our, our, do our company logo in leather. And so we got super, super busy doing that. And it really um, kind of became our main thing, <clears throat> but it was always in the back of my head that I wanted to get back to doing maps. Um, that was our original vision, myself and my partner. And, and uh, you know, things didn't work out between us. We, we split ways and I wanted to move up here and pursue music. So I sold out of the leather, that leather business in Texas. And, and he went on with it and he's doing pretty good doing just coasters and, and things like that. Um, but then I moved up here. Um, and then <clears throat> two or three years ago, like I say, I kind of got the itch to, to try some of that bigger stuff again. And so I had a custom press made, um, had, had it built here. There's a, there's, I didn't even know it, but there was an actually a, a press company that builds custom presses here in, in my town, it's, you know, 40,000 people who would have thought, you know, it's a nationally recognized, uh, company, Columbia machine works. And I didn't even know they were here. And I was like, dang, you know, I couldn't believe it. It was just incredible luck. Cause I was looking at, at shipping something in from Ohio, you know, which would have been several thousand dollars to, just for the shipping. But so I just had to drive across town and show them my drawings and they, they built it for me and uh, delivered it. And so I basically have this press in my garage and that's, uh, that's what I use um, most, mostly to do the impressions in the, in the leather and the copper and, it's a hydraulic press, uh, and it's it's a strong one. Uh, uh, it's very slow. It's not anything that you could get your hand caught in or anything because it goes twenty inches a minute. <laughs> but uh, but I usually leave it only about three or four inches open. So I, I I'll slide um, slide my 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 dies in there with the leather or the copper or the whatever I'm pressing aluminum. Um, and and then I just uh, slowly bring it together and it, it, uh, you know, embosses the image into the, into the leather. And so, but it is, it's a hydraulic and it's, it's extremely strong. Uh, it's, I brought the cylinders in, had to have them shipped from overseas and each cylinder is, um, let's see, I always have to remember 
130 tons. So there's four cylinders under it. So it's uh, whatever that comes out to be, 520 tons, I think. So it's yeah. it, it'll, it'll do the job. <laughs> 520 tons and yeah it's, of it's and that's a, that's about the that's about the equivalent of, of oh i think it's three 737s um so i could i could lift three 737s with my with my press if i wanted to <laughs> yeah. if they were in my garage turn them around make a good jack <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah what uh the dies what are those made of well uh different materials depending on what i'm pressing um i do anything from you know steel dies to aluminum to um i do i use a lot of delrin which leather workers will be familiar with that or acetyl some people call it yeah it's like one of the hardest plastics <clears throat> and i use a cnc and, and i and i just cut out the uh, cut the die with my cnc and um and depending on what i'm what i'm doing you know I'll, if it's a, a just a two 2.5 d they call it where it's just kind of a you put a, a v-carved bit and it'll make an image if you're just wanting a flat image but the topography maps um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you saw the texas one that was that's been our biggest seller and i haven't sold a ton of them but that's that's the one that has had the most interest but that one is done with a 3d bit it's done with the stl files and all that stuff i don't know how familiar you, familiar you are with all that but are you milling out a billet of steel or aluminum for the bottom of the Texas map? Not the steel. Um, that has to be shipped off for those special ones. And that those aren't too often. Um, those are for the metal things. And I actually haven't, I'm doing some, some tests on that right now. I don't do a whole lot of uh, steel or aluminum dyes, but I probably will pretty soon here. Um, but yeah, so I guess to, to go back a ways, what I do, if I want to do a state, say Colorado or whatever, um, I'll, I'll, uh, well, I have a guy, I've, I've done it myself where I'll go on the USGS and download the, the, the DEM files or, or geotiffs, whatever those are called. And, but I just, it's, I'm really slow with that part of it. So I have a guy that actually does that for me. Um, and, uh, I kind of farm that out and he lives actually in Nigeria. I found him on Fiverr. Actually, I, I'm not a big fan of Fiverr. Um, just because I'm, I've, I was a graphic designer for so many years and Fiverr took so much of my work away from me, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, so I farmed that out and then he, he gives me an STL file, um, which he basically stitches all the little tiles together from the USGS, um, or others. He has another source as well, which I don't even know what, where that is. Um, but he, if he can't find it on USGS, he'll find it somewhere else. And he's just really good at sleuthing out, trying to find exactly what we need um, to make an STL file and then he'll send it to me. And then I, I take it from there, um, into my software and, um, uh, to create the, 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 um, G code. Um, and there's very, very little that I need to do after he's done with it. Occasionally I might need to proportion it just a little bit differently. Sometimes you get the files and they're a little, little bit stretched, maybe 10% one way or the other. So I look at them really you know, closely and make sure that everything's proportional. And if I do need to, to resize something, I, I do that in my, in my software, I just generate the G code, which is sometimes tricky because Texas, for instance, you'll have really, you know, the, the areas beside the ocean, the, the, near the Gulf are so flat, you know, you can't hardly see anything realistically. And then you've got El Capitan way over in, in West Texas. That's, 8,700 feet. And so there's a, there's a huge, you know, uh, difference in elevation, um, huge spectrum or whatever you want to call it. And so what I, what I do is in my, in the software, uh, I will exaggerate the lowlands a little bit and descale the highlands a little bit, um, just to, just to even it out a little bit. So, you know, kind of it kind of breaks the rules probably of a true cartographer or whatever or, or you know someone who's wants to stay true to the to the terrain but it, it just makes a more visually appeasing piece you know when you can see an exaggerated terrain where you may not be able to see any at all if it was just the way it actually is after i'm satisfied with the heights of different areas elevation wise 
then it's just generating the the G code and um, sending it to the CNC. And I like to go slower than faster because I I hate missing little, you know, I hate the little lines that appear if I go too fast. I stay under 35 inches per minute, which on the Texas piece, it took about two and a half days solid. Like I had it going nonstop. It does take a bit um, just to make the stamp. And, um, and then, and then from there, I, um, I create a, once the stamp is made, uh, in, in, the, in the case of Texas, it's made in the Delrin material. Then I, I, I make a kind of a distal layer, they call it. It's a, just a little bit of a separation between, um, the, the, the stamp and the counter or the mold and the counter mold. And so I use a, a wax product and then I pour, uh, an epoxy aluminum um, type of a resin um, for the counter mold. And, uh, and so that just essentially becomes two stamps that sandwich the, the leather or the whatever I'm, I'm, I'm pressing the copper. Essentially how it's done. There's a lot more else involved. It's uh, once I have it pressed, it, it's the leather is really flimsy. And so I have to, I have to do kind of a taxidermy type process. I have to fill the back with some urethane resin uh, so that it stays rigid. Um, otherwise it'll, you know, it'll collapse or, or somebody will stick their finger in the mountain and poke it in, you know? <laughs> um, so I'll make sure that it's, you know, nice and rigid. And, and then I, uh, then I do a lot of highlighting and staining and, and do the, you know, do the hand work, which takes a few days and several steps. Anyway, that's that's basically how it works. It's fun. I I, I enjoy it. Uh, I wish it was all I, all I did, I and mean, maybe someday it will be. Um, but right now, it's kind of a side thing. And but we're getting you getting the word out and uh, getting more and more orders. So who knows? You know. Thanks for laying that out. Is there a, a maximum size you could do with your press? Like, have you ever made some Titanic? Uh, pressed leather or metal? Yeah. Well, the biggest I've done. Uh, <clears throat> as far as the maps or terrain it is a DFW um, Dallas Fort Worth map, which that took four solid days nonstop to make the stamp. There's just so many little roads. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I got, I got an insanely detailed file um, from a guy and I was like, man, I wonder if I can do this. And so, um, but I was proud of my CNC. It just it just went and went and went. I I would go to sleep and wake up in the morning and it, you know, had done an eighth of it. <laughs> so and so yeah, that's the biggest one. And it, it's forty forty two by seventy two. Yeah, pressed in aluminum, and I'm gonna try copper. Actually, probably later this evening. Um, there were some things I had to do to it because it when I poured the the counter mold, it was a little bit uneven, and I think my I think my counter mold, um, I think the epoxy cured a little bit too fast and it, it warped it. And so I'm having to, I'm having to press it in segments, which isn't a, it isn't a big deal. That's happened before. Um, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things you run into when you're doing something that large. And, uh, next time I'll know to, to pour a little bit of thinner, you know, thinner stage, several steps in the, in the epoxy. Um, if you pour it all at once, you can get some exotherm it's a little too hot and it'll it'll warp a million things to that i've had i've learned the hard way just about trial and error burn through a lot of money <laughs> but it's fun it's it's really it's really been a blast to do it and i I've, I've never seen anybody else do exactly like this so it's um so far it's unique you know as far as pro existing products i don't really see much out there uh that's exactly like it so knock on wood that maybe that'll last a while yeah it's totally unique. And so you had, you had attempted this before in uh, the Texas leather workshop and it never worked right. I was working on a small scale. There was a guy that I was working with that do our, our CNC part of it. And, you know, it's one of those things where it takes so much trial and error as far as what, what can you push the material? How far can you push it? How, you know, what kind of relief can you get before it tears? And it was just, it, it was just becoming way too, too much money to go back and ask this guy to try try this height and then i try this height and oh that's too much so that was what we ran into um you know I, I knew someday maybe i might have my own machine that i could i could do my own tests and stuff and not spend so much money 
it was mainly just my time, you know, and the wear and tear on my CNC. But I went through several, yeah, I mean, doing it myself, I went through several, several bits. I mean, just broken bits and broken belts and broken this and that because I would just go too fast or, you know, whatever and just did things wrong, did the wrong bits and the wrong material. Definitely threw out a lot of plastic <laughs> and, uh, you know, who knows how many, how many thousands of dollars I've gone through. Um, but I think we finally figured out the formula, you know, just like I say, by trial and error, there's so many things I've had to learn that I'm not expert, you know, not at all. I'm not expert in any of it. It's so new. It's, it's kind of hard to ask someone exactly how to do something when I don't know of anybody really that's doing what we're trying to do. That's what I always say with like these illuminated maps I make. In 2019, I thought I want to buy a glowing map, but I couldn't. So I found the most expensive way to buy something new is to make it yourself. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you got you got nothing to do but throw money in a pit until it works. I've I've checked I've checked your stuff out. It's really cool. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, same with yours. Wait, just so I get the end to end here. You collect the elevation model, get stitched together by the Nigerian guy, sent mm -hmm. to you as a STL. You clean yeah. it up, adjust the exaggeration of the terrain in different parts to make it pop, which by the way is the, the oldest cartographic practice. That's all cartographers do all day is take the raw data and think that doesn't look right and tweak it. So yeah. you're, you're, in, you're in good company there. And then you cool. you do all the milling yourself. It's your CNC. Yes, I need a better CNC. I've it's not quite robust enough. It's um, a little shaky. Um, I had it custom built because I didn't want a full four by eight for it. I wanted a I wanted a four by six, and so um, I just couldn't find anything out there that I could that I could afford. It, it was anyway, but it actually does really well. It's it's. It's fast, but it's just a little shaky. So uh, that's probably our next big purchase is, is another CNC. But it's been it's been doing great for two years, actually almost three years now. So that's a capital expense, you know, the twenty thousand dollar Tormach. Yeah, <laughs> so, something that weighs nine like a thousand pounds. This is not going to shake. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I'm looking for. Something that doesn't. Cause I can, I can see it. I mean, I can see the little jitter, you know, it's, it's microscopic, but I, I'm like, that street's not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. The other, uh, end of artisanship, making totally unique things, finding errors that no one else could possibly detect. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you, um, cut the, uh, the molds out of the positives out of plastic or aluminum or steel, then lay epoxy over them to make a, create a little gap. Yeah, actually wax. Yeah. Wax, okay. Where's the epoxy happen? The the epoxy is the is the counter mold. Uh it's the one that that um that will come down, you know, on the on the positive. It's essentially the reverse um so every mountain becomes a valley in the in the counter mold and and vice versa. Every valley is essentially a mountain. Um and so that <clears throat> that's the best way and I tried it without doing the counter mold and it just doesn't work because, um, you know, it's, you just can't, you can't push, can't push the mountains or can't push the valleys in. That was the problem. Get good, good mountains, but the valleys would be dull. Um, the lowlands would be just, just kind of a little, you know, little trough of leather that didn't have any terrain. And so, so we had to, had to figure out a way to, and that was always in the back of my mind. Um, and I knew that actually this, this go around, I knew that I needed to do counter molds. Um, but the first time around 10 years ago, we were trying every way on earth to try to get it to work without doing a counter mold. It's, it's a lot more complex than I've, you know, tried to explain here, but it, cause there's, a, there's a lot that happens. You have shrinkage and you have to, like I say, you have to watch out for exotherm and have to use the right kind of epoxy or you're, any any shrinkage um, that's past you know I don't know 0 0.001 inch it'll it'll throw your your mold off and you'll actually crack your um, you'll crack one of the molds because it's trying to trying to go f you know fit into each other and if it if it can't then it'll once something's got to give and so I cracked a lot of epoxy um, hundreds of dollars per pour you know just. <laughs> 
<laughs> you pull it out of the pull it out of the press, and there's a giant crack going through. All that time. Oh, it's so frustrating. It's just like, do I want to continue? Like, do I have the money A or do I have the patience B? It's it's like. Yeah, you go to bed like I'm never doing this again, and you get up exactly. the next day like, oh, I got it. I slept on it. I know what to do. Oh yeah, I have a little journal. I go go to bed totally disgusted, and then I wake up at two a.m. like, wait a minute, and I'll write down, you know, this harebrained idea of, to make it work. It's, you know, fifteen or twenty of those harebrained ideas finally finally it clicks on how how to make it work, and so you're in the hard part of it's big, and I need hundred micron precision. Yes. Yeah, that is exactly right. The DFW stamp, I'm still holding my breath because of all the things I've done to make sure it doesn't shrink, I'm still like, man, this thing is huge. There's going to have to be some shrinkage here. And so that's such a big map. There's no way I could have done it smaller because the roads would become too small, essentially for the viscosity of the epoxy to go into. So I had to make it that large. Otherwise, you just wouldn't get a, get a good, good, clean counter mold. And so... So we're talking, I mean, the streets are like, uh, I think the smallest ones are 30 seconds of an inch narrow, you know, so, but it's, it's enough. I mean, it's crazy what copper and aluminum will, you know, the impression you can get in those. And the sheets I use are pretty, pretty thin. It's uh, 10 mil copper. So it's, I think that's like maybe a third the thickness of a penny. But yeah, I'm like, gosh. That size, I don't know if I can keep it from shrinking because I mean, it's like the bigger you get, the more proportionally that it's more likely to shrink a little bit you know you're fighting physics at that part yeah do you have anyone else pouring with you luckily one of my daughters is still home my other two are in college <laughs> so or one of them's in college the other one is i've got actually sorry i've got i've got four kids and one of them is doing great out in, in the world he lives in montana and my three girls i've got one that's just moved to Alaska for the summer to do a summer job. And then I've got another daughter that's training to be a pilot. She's, she's in college. And so I've got one left at home still in high school. And I don't know what I'm going to do when she leaves. It's like my wife's going to be really irritated because I'll keep calling her out to the garage to help me, I guess. But yeah, on a, on a big epoxy pour, it's, it's almost essential to have another hand. Just the, the, the epoxy, just the weight of it is, I'll be sitting there trying to slowly pour it out of a five-gallon bucket. And I'm a pretty strong guy, but man, I mean, I'm trying to pour it slow, and it's like it's really hard to hold. So it's good to have just another hand there just kind of, um, you know, stabilize. Once you ramp up production, you need a gantry system or something. Exactly. Yeah, all that stuff. I've got that in my little journal. and I've got all kinds of little, little gantries and little um, table jacks and things like that that I'll somehow implement someday driving around town seeing a huge empty aluminum building like oh that's gonna be that's gonna be press works uh, it's exactly what i do all the time like driving through I, I, that's that's like that would make great great place that would how was the um material selection process like did you did it take a long time to find a supplier that could give you good quality leather and copper and it's been kind of tough but because i'll find a great source and then all of a sudden they're like sorry we're six months out <laughs> i'm like dang so i've had to i've had to just do a lot of jumping around and finding just several different sources um but I, i'll always i can always find somebody that's that's got what i need the main the, the place that's it's it's the best leather i found to do the terrain maps um there's a place in new jersey and they have some some great leather um um, and there's also some great tan, you know, tanners that are, they're pretty expensive. Herman Oak is probably the best leather you can get, but it's, it's pretty expensive. Um, so it, depending on what I do, I, I, you know, sometimes I need something that's really high end and sometimes the pressure, it doesn't matter. It'll, it'll press it no matter what, but it's, it's all expensive. I mean, leather is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. There's only one way to get it. You got to grow a cow. Tannin. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's cool. I, I, I use vegetable tanned, which it's a little more um, earth friendly. You know, it's, it's not the chromium tan is the stuff that they make couches and shoes and stuff out of um, clothing and, you know, upholstery and stuff. And um, it's a little more 
chemical heavy in the, in the manufacturing of it. So, um, most vegetable tan is most, for the most part, natural. It's, they use natural tannins. Um, but I'm sure there's some, some ugly stuff involved as well, but that's kind of their whole thing is the tanneries always say, you know, we use earth friendly vegetable tanning. Or you do not want to know what the copper mine looks like. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no. I'm making stuff in the 21st century. It's going to have some huge tailing pile somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know about the copper. I just, uh, I don't think I want to know, but I love copper, man. It's so much fun to work with. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's almost, I, I prefer it almost over the leather stuff. I love doing the city maps and, um, just cause I think copper is so dang beautiful. It's just, I don't, every time I do, and I, I, I just not, I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. Just how magical that color is, you know, it's just gorgeous. Is, is the black in the copper just from the compression or is something rubbing off onto it? It's just some chemicals that, um, that I put on there. I, you have to remove when you get the copper in sheet form, they coat it with, uh, some sort of a, it's not like, it may be just like lacquer some sort, but it's, you have to remove all that. And I mean, the second you remove it, the copper, the copper starts to tarnish just from the moisture in the air. And so, um, which isn't a problem because you can always buff it back to its, you know, to its shine. Um, but it's crazy though. I, I'll take that lacquer off with, with, uh, I'll just use, you can use vinegar, really strong vinegar. Um, I use that or I'll, uh, sometimes I'll use lacquer thinner. Um, but I, I prefer the vinegar just cause it's not so harsh. Um, but yeah, I'll just remove it and then, <clears throat> um, and then put it in the press and, and then once it's, uh, once the streets are, are embossed in there, then I will take a, it's, I forget what it's called, but it just comes in a spray bottle and I'll just spray it all over the copper and let it sit for a few minutes. And then it, it stays in the streets, you know? And so it turns that kind of darker in the low areas. And then, you know, just several back and forth things um, to kind of buff back and sort of make it vignetted a little bit. It's fun. I, I really enjoy that part of it. It's, it's a lot of work. It's probably more work than the leather, but it's just something about it. I just really love because every piece is different. You know, every, every piece of copper just reacts differently. And it's always just these really cool, happy accidents that happen. Elliot's in his happy place in the garage full of solvents, just getting his fumes on, having a great time. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I have to open the garage door when I'm doing that stuff because, whew. For that 72-inch copper sheet, did you have to support it while portions of it are pressed? I'll put a, a kind of a rigid, it's it's called um, aeroply, and it's really super strong bamboo plywood, and so it's got a high compression you know, more than ample to, to withstand the pressure, um, on those maps. Now the leather ones, I have to do a different thing, um, for those, cause it's just a lot more pressure. It sounds weird, but it, it, it does require more pressure for the train maps than the copper. Just, I guess, because it's just, just, there's a lot more mountains and valleys going on. You know, um, the copper is just only, you're only going a third of a 16th, <laughs> but yeah, I just put that aeroply actually, uh, glue the, the male, I call them the male mold that actually has the streets, um, that are, that are embossed. <clears throat> that one goes like the streets are raised. The, yeah. The, the streets, the streets are, 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 are embossed. Um, the buildings, well, I say buildings, the blocks are debossed. So they're poking up a little bit. The counter mold is exactly, exactly, exactly opposite of that. So put the copper in, in there and it's supported by the mold and the, the aeroply substrate and then that goes into the into the press i slide into the press and then with a with a counter mode on top and there's a lot of things i have to i have to align do some some kind of tricky things to make sure the the counter mold is aligned with with the mold underneath otherwise you know like i say if it's off just by hundredth of an inch it'll it won't be it won't work well in fact it i've done that so many times and crushed my counter mold um crush the streets and had to start over yeah the precision of like a german ball bearing factory to make yes. these decorative <laughs> items it's incredible i love how you borrow trouble that that's art it's definitely a blood sweat and tears and all of this um blood sweat tears and ruined epoxy 
stamps. These are all commissions? Like people find this and think, oh, I, I need that. Some of them are, yeah. Um, we're, we <clears throat> we're just now starting to promote it. I mean, we, I really didn't really get the process figured out until about last October or November. And so we, you know, we, we threw out a little promotional thing on Instagram, um, had some sales at Christmas and then, um, kind of regrouped. I had, I still had to figure out a bunch of stuff. I had a breakthrough just a week ago, um, which I'm kicking myself cause it was, it was so easy to find. And I had, I, I toiled about it so long and I, all I had to do was do a Google search. And so, um, but I had a breakthrough involving the, the resin in the back on the back side. Um, but anyway, so that's, you know, that's, um, going to make it easier. So, so the process just keeps getting perfected and, you know, I imagine maybe here in another few months, it'll, I'll be able to do it in my sleep, hopefully <laughs> with less material wastage. Yes. That's, that's what I'm mainly hoping for is just stop burning through all this leather and stuff. You first prototyped this 10 years ago and then kind of nailed it down a month ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I just partially prototyped it. We did it differently 10 years ago. We, we, I, I used wax. It's basically machinable wax. It's made with a mixture of wax, I guess, paraffin wax and HDPE plastic. It's, it's like a, a mixture. They melt both of those down and mix them and you can machine it. And it's really hard wax, but it is still, you know, considered wax. And so I would have the terrain, um, models milled in, in the wax. And then I would, and I don't know exactly why we were doing it that way. Um, I guess it was because we were doing another process similar to that. And I, I didn't think about just, just going straight from the plastic to, you know, using that as the actual, the actual milled thing as the, as the mold being the mold itself. I, I was trying to pour a counter and then from that create a distal layer and, and make the, the male mold. And so mm. we never got as far as, as actually making a working stamp. Uh, I, I, I experimented with a few things with, with different materials, but we never actually pressed anything with, for leather. So we never, we never got that far. I used, I think I did some stuff with paper and um, some thin aluminum and then because I didn't want to, I didn't even want to waste, we were on such a tight budget. I didn't, I didn't want to waste, you know, a big old piece of leather because I just knew I didn't have it right. But all the while, we were kind of strapped uh, for money, so that's why that really didn't proceed. Do you have any materials that you're aching to try once things, I guess, get a little more streamlined? Or do you think you're settled on these two? Yeah, I, I'm always thinking about that. You know, uh, I, ha I have done some cool art papers. Um, the reason I don't like doing it in paper, I love the way it looks. The problem is when you frame it and everything, you have to cover it in glass. And I just don't like, like... I don't like having to, to mess with that. Like it's shipping is a problem when you have glass involved and, you know, so I don't know, we will, we'll figure that out, but, um, they're certainly not going to be able to be as big as the leather pieces. What I like about the leathers, I, I, I make it where you can touch it. Like I want people to feel it. It's a tactile thing, you know, where you can actually feel the mountains and the valleys and it's like a saddle. A saddle's made to be rode and, and, and sat on, you know, and I, I want the leather to be something to, to enjoy every sense, you know, all of your, your senses, including touch. And so it smells great. It looks great and it, it feels great, you know, so I want people to touch it. So that's why I, I, I put epoxy in the backside so that you can't, you can't mash in the mountains and stuff. It's, it's hard as a rock. So I encourage people it's, it's made to be touched and I, I put a good top coat on it. It can be clean with a wet rag even, you know, that's great that, uh, these are meant to really put your nose in, get up close to it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the things I, I think is unique about it. Um, why would you want to create a, a relief map that you can't touch? That's miserable. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can just look at a picture if you just want to look at it, but touching it is what's, it's what's cool about it. That's the same target I got with my glowing stuff. Very few maps invite you to just look as close as you can. Yeah. Anything that stand the test of time, they don't degrade once you put your eyeball right up to it. It just looks nicer. You find more texture. You don't, it, it doesn't break down. And right, right. Like you get that with like, not like pick up a pine cone. You're, it's really hard to find the seams in it. 
and same thing with like your maps it's like i'm looking at real materials there's nothing nothing hidden nothing gimcrack it's all it, it invites you to look closer and find more things you like yeah you know so much stuff so many things now is are, are virtual i just you know it's cool and everything but gosh i mean we're just tactile human beings we're just we want to touch we want things to click and and, and make noises when we and fit, you know we want to feel I think a lot of things are going in a way that neglects that need for a tactile world, you know. There's, it's hard to make that kind of memory with the screen. Right, right, yeah. I mean, something that replicates texture, well, that's cool, but it's, it just doesn't complete you as a human being. Yeah, you won't cherish it either. Right, right. The CGI stuff is, everything looks real, but nothing is real, <laughs> so... And, and as a graphic designer, graphic artist, uh, actually commercial illustrator, I, I, I did illustration, still do illustration, you know, just, I just draw pictures for companies. Did you ever make maps in your illustration design? No, I mean, not, not serious, you know, not, that not actually maps. I, I would do little maps for menus and things, but, um, you know, but I always enjoyed doing that when I, when I did the few and far between, I did some stuff like that for Hilton about. 12 years ago that was fun i um kind of made a little a world map for a coloring map for for kids and uh but yeah i've always just really loved, loved maps i mean that's i guess i kind of combined my love for, for the maps with my love for leather and and yeah just so so working working on the computer for all these years i just like I've got to get in, I've got to do something else. I mean, that's kind of what drove me to, 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 to start that up. Um, and I missed it. Like whenever I sold out and, and moved to Tennessee, um, I really missed that. So just working with your hands is something that I've always felt the need to do somehow, you know, uh, with something. So this definitely scratches that itch because there's a lot of handwork involved. You know, it's the press only gets it so far, but, uh, if you don't, put some handwork into it, it, it's going to be a little bit lackluster, especially with the, the staining techniques and the highlighting and bringing out the mountains, you know, and just doing the, doing some things to it to make it perfect, you know. And that's what makes it a great piece of decorative art. Yeah, there's machines involved here, but a human eye has gone over every inch. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, the CNC is, it does exactly what you tell it to, but there's little anomalies that happen. Now, I'm always having to sand down little things and like, why in the world did that do that? You know, just... So you have to keep that human human eye on it just to make sure it it uh, it's aesthetically pleasing and there's not anything weird happening. Um, I've had to I found I, what I, one thing I, I didn't realize this is one one of the things that um, I had to become educated on. I didn't realize that there was uh, little little missing holes and spots in the geotests like and. <laughs> it would, you know, the CNC be cranking along and I, I, I wouldn't even see it on the soft, on the, on the image on the software, uh, cause it's so small, but all of a sudden it'll freak out. Like it'll, uh, it'll just stop or it'll, it'll go up really high and leave this little small, um, splinter of plastic. And it's just a blank spot where there's no data that was missed somehow in the, the satellite image. Yeah. That's a common GIS hassle is uh, if you don't make sure your d your elevation model is void filled then you're gonna you're gonna see that and but again like since you're dealing with the world of atoms it's a lot more inconvenient than like i see that and i'm right. like oh photoshop that out right yeah well it's definitely easier to do it on on the software side than it is to to file down the little you know little things that aren't supposed to be there i'm really familiar with retouching because i did a lot of that too over in my career so so yeah just going in there and kind of blending things and making it look making it look good you know and so. in your illustration career did you start with uh ink and pencil or you always been with the wacom or yeah actually i did i um out of college i graduated from mcmurray university in abilene texas and um moved to dallas in the mid 90s <laughs> and started uh started working with a graphic design firm there and we we just did nothing but conventional stuff we didn't have a computer in the whole studio um for for a couple of years which was crazy because i when i first started there i mean i was i was really young and 
you know, they thought I was like coming in there, telling them how to do things. But I was like, guys, you've got, we've got to get some computers because that's, that's the way things are headed. And so finally, you know, late nineties, we finally got some, some Macs and, um, but yeah, I, I did everything with airbrush and just paints, gouache, all that stuff, you know, acrylics. No way you're the first living airbrusher I've ever talked to because yeah. that's how they used yeah. to make um, the reliefs, all the terrain shading uh, for big maps was airbrush. Oh, I know. I love looking at those old videos of um, the way they used to hand paint those globes and stuff. Uh, and I think there's a company out there that still does it that way. It's so cool. They make these humongous globes and they still hand paint them, you know, and then they varnish and they're super expensive. It's like a $90,000 globe or whatever. It's like, I don't know who's buying these things, but you know, somebody is. Yeah. That's um, Be Bellerby and co. Is that who you're talking about? It could be. I, I don't, I can't remember the name. I just, I found them like a few weeks ago. I was like, that's so cool that people are still doing these by hand. Yeah. They'll sell you. If you have 120,000 bucks, they'll give you a four foot diameter globe. That, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's nuts. I met a guy in, um, in Colorado. He's incredible. He's an arborist. So he'll drop a tree and if it's a nice tree, he'll turn the fattest part of the trunk on a lathe, create about a 45 pound wooden sphere out of solid walnut. Oh, wow. And then get out dental tools and a Dremel and carve an accurate terrain map into the oh, entire thing. Oh, that's so thing. cool. And it's, it's, a, it's a spectacular feat of just geometry because he has this huge uh, vintage National Geographic topobathymetric relief. So it's got like all the undersea ridges and all the mountains on land. And he looks at it and then has the globe in front of him and carves that. And that's it, amazing. It is like I visited him. I drove a, I dropped a, one of my glowing maps off in Colorado and I DM'd him and he's like, yeah, come by the shop. And I got to see his workshop full of these things. And um, I'm trying to get him on the podcast. He uh, doesn't have a lot of time. I'm like, just sit, like park, sit in the truck covered in sawdust and talk to me. Like people got to yeah. know about this. <laughs> that, that's a real artist there. I mean, that, you know, we're talking about he, he by hand, everything. Goodness gracious. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you're part of that. Very cool. You're part of that. Like you, you can draw like me. I'm, I'm pure computer. Like I could, you, it would pain you to see me draw a straight line. <laughs> and so like, I always say like, um, cartography 200 years ago was start with a blank page and then use your knowledge of drafting and geodesy and uh, yeah. trigonometry and surveying to make a map. And now cartography is you start with the most cluttered page, like your DFW roadmap. Right. And then you're like, okay, time to throw out the driveways and yeah. the, the on-ramps I don't need. And so cartography yeah. inverted since 1980 with the advent of computers and GIS from build up to winnow down. Yes. And that really hurt it because if you're starting with a huge hairball and removing stuff, you by default don't look at every inch of it unless you're extremely fastidious, which most people are not. And that's so true. that's why that that was my joke. Like people tell me like, Oh, I love maps. And I'm like, do you have one hanging in your house? And if they say yes, I ask, was it made before 1980? And uh, the answer is always yes. No one, no one has ever hung a decorative map in their house that was new in the computer age, made in the computer age. That's yeah. I, I, now that I think about it, I had a, we had a map that was, I'm sure it was made in the seventies that I loved. It was a world map. I don't even know where that thing is. I think it, we lost it when we moved it from Texas to here, but yeah, I just, I, I loved it cause it was kind of yellowish and it just kind of had that older look, you know? hand-drawn look a little bit but yeah it's you still have it it's just too much information everywhere now <laughs> yeah yeah the filtering is what you're is what the the 21st century is about exactly and i, I guess have you seen the the lord of the maps guy the, the guy that draws draws those yeah, kind of fantasy those. maps isaac christian dushku is his name Utah yeah guy. Yeah, he's. I love his style. I, you know, it's uh, it's definitely kind of got. You know, you have to you have to not be so hung up on accuracy. But I just love. I love the way they look. They just kind of look. You know, like a couple of hundred years old. Um, or they look like they're. You know, they, they kind of look like the um, Middle Earth. You know, the map drawn for Middle Earth for the for the Hobbit. 
exactly. There's a there's a guy on Etsy called Medieval Map Maker, and he's the ultimate old fashioned guy. He I I I. I emailed him like, Hey, can I interview for this podcast? And he says, you can interview me by handwritten letter only. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so I'm practicing my penmanship, but he has, oh, wow. he has drawn more than 500 maps, about 12 by 18 and with ink and marker on old timey parchment. And then he'll scan them and make prints and they're maps purely out of his fancy. Like I'm going to draw a map of you know Dante's Canticas. I'm going to draw a map of all the the breweries in Wisconsin. I'm going to draw a map of all the fish fries in Minnesota. Uh, That's cool. All these national parks and just whatever comes out of his head. And he sold twelve thousand of these maps. Oh my gosh! Like grossed maybe two hundred k in twelve <laughs> and its expenses being time and parchment paper and ink. Wow. And. He's a, he's a true artist because at the very t- the only thing his page says is uh, no requests. He's like I got five more than five hundred <laughs> maps and uh, they're about they're they're my thing. Like I'm not right. gonna map what you care about, but he has so many and they're so varied that uh, he gets tons of sales. And That's so crazy. he's like my map entrepreneur hero. That's why I wanted to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> like I wish I had that much dedication. Like oh man, like I. I make, I've made like a few really intensive maps, like mm-hmm. as old as I can make them. Like I'll hire an illustrator to decorate them. I'll hire a hand letterer. So there's no computer type on them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're, they're a huge pain. It, take me, it took me like 10 months to do one of the Tongass national forest. Oh, wow. And whenever I'm doing it, I'm like, man, making maps is such a pain. Like one of my least favorite things to do is make maps. <laughs> like, yeah, it just takes so long yeah and so it does. whenever i encounter someone who's just has the love of the game i'm just so impressed oh yeah yeah it's even even just prepping mine for uh, you know the street maps for for taking them into um into the cnc software making sure all the streets are, are you know there's nothing that's um you know just any kind of anomalies or things that aren't supposed to be there it's just a lot of, it's just a lot of work um scanning over every every inch of, um, you know, and the way I, the way I do it, I, I, I have to have the streets wide enough, um, uh, or, or, or the, the software doesn't want to, the, doesn't allow, allow the bit to get in there. And so, uh, so, so I have to make the, I may have to make the straights streets. I have to widen, you know, a couple of streets. There's always some that will just disappear from the map completely. If I don't go in there and just, um, exaggerate the thickness just a hair not that it would be even noticeable by anybody but I don't want the streets to be left out you know um, so anyway there's a, just just that work just cleaning up an existing map is like um, takes forever to do so I'm, I'm I'm like gosh I'm sick of maps after every one I, <laughs> I do it's like I don't want to see another map for a long time because a good map is all about attention exactly no cheating it yeah, and I, I'm I'm weird. I, I'm like I don't want anybody any like what if what if one of the streets that gets left out is somebody's street? Like I can't let that happen. So you know, it's like I'd kill myself trying to make every street show up. And so for the um, for the DFW map was did someone take a bunch of I guess government or open street map data, give you an Illustrator file, and you started winnowing it out? That one I I did do the open. Uh, open street map. Uh, and I had to compile, I had to combine several. I don't, I don't think I could find a whole DFW. I had to do Fort Worth and Arlington and Dallas. And I, I kind of, um, mosaic, mosaic those or whatever you call it. And had to, uh, I had to stretch things a little bit cause it's all, they never just completely line, line up perfect in my experience. So I had to, you know, just bring them in, in, into, uh, Photoshop. Um, trying to remember how I did that one. Yeah, I think I brought it into Photoshop and, and made, and then I kind of do a thing where I'll, I'll blur it slightly, uh, then contrast it and it'll, it'll create a little more, a little more of an easier file for the bit to follow. Um, if I've got totally sharp angles everywhere, one, it doesn't look as good visually to me. It looks more hand drawn. If I go in there and do some effects in Photoshop and two, you know, just besides being just looking better, 
um, yeah, it just makes it easier for the CNC to cut it. Everything being rounded is a lot faster than, you know, and, and like I say, my CNC is not robust enough. When it hits a, it hits a sharp angle, it'll jitter, you know, maybe a 64th of an inch, but it'll, it'll definitely jitter a little bit. And so I just don't like that. So when it's round, it never does that full stop. It'll just kind of cut a little rounded edge on everything. So, Oh, I see. So you've blurred all the roads a little bit. So it's yeah. Softer. Yeah. And, and it, the, the, the copper or aluminum presses a little more cleanly. Sometimes in a, in a sharp corner, you'll get a little cut out there um, that you can't see. It's, it's, you know, microscopic. Um, but if you hold it up to the light, you'll see a little crack where there's a corner just because it creases the, the metal and causes a little breakthrough right there. So, but it doesn't matter a whole lot because I, I put, you know, I, I put the, the urethane resin on the back and it, it plugs up those little holes. The resin doing you a favor for once. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's all fun, you know, trying to figure out this stuff, but it, it does take the hours. I tell you. Yeah. Do you have, um, like a thousand yard target for like, a something you really want to make either in leather or copper or something else like say, cleared your commissions you got months to work on it like an opus two things that's a, probably a little more realistic the first one is to do the whole u.s in a in a gigantic piece of leather um i just think that would be so cool and i don't know exactly who would buy that but <laughs> maybe a museum or something um but just a just an accurate terrain model of the whole u.s in in a big you know as big a piece of leather as i can find um, <clears throat> but like I say, it takes so long to, you know, probably take a week solid to, to see and see that. And then the epoxy alone will probably take a thousand bucks, you know, so it's, I got to save up some money before I do that. Um, that and all, and then I would love to figure out how to do a globe, a terrain leather, a leather terrain globe, um, that is big, you know, like a three foot diameter or something like that have you tested making stuff in the shape of gores like those long yeah like the the um orange wedge or whatever you call it i i have i've i've talked to the the fellow in in nigeria and he is still kind of working on it but he's like i could do it if unless he, he can he can do it he can give me stuff in any kind of map except the the geotiffs, the, the, you know, the, the elevation models. And so, um, he's like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. I don't have the software to distort it. So I'm still looking for somebody that kind of can do that. And that would be the first step. Okay. I'm, I'm going to send you some emails. I think I could help you with that. That'd be great. Yeah. I haven't really talked to anybody except the, the guy that I've worked with. And so, um, if I could figure that out, that would be a major step. And then there's a lot of other things to figure out how to how to make it work and i've watched a ton of videos on how they make globes and it's a lot more complicated than i thought so <laughs> yeah exactly there's a lot of paste and overlapping yeah the other problem i run into is um with leather the problem is it shrinks and so anything that you press in there if you press it when it's damp if you've cased it um then it's going to shrink and so if you're dealing with trying to fit wedges together that are calculated to fit exactly together on a globe, then they probably won't come together. So I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to figure out another method to, um, to get that to work. So we'll see. So I don't know if it can be some more painful, expensive prototyping where you yeah. do a lot of gores and see like, do they shrink consistently? Can I exactly get, yeah. cut them a little bigger? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, we'll see. So it may not be perfect, but I just, I just want to try it. We'll see. A question I always ask at the end is there's, are there any uh, map makers living or dead whose work people should check out or in your case, just anyone making cool stuff since you have a good eye for this kind of thing? You know, I just, I, I love maps. I'm just not, a, I'm just not an, enough of a, um, I don't know what the word would be, connoisseur of maps to know many people out there doing them except you know just the few people we've talked about the and I, I don't even know his name i hate that uh the lord of the maps guy <laughs> um 
you know, I don't know if he, he, his would be considered uh, really, you know, mat, cart, cartography or whatever. But yeah, he is 100%. Yeah. I just, I love his stuff and um, it's, I think it's unique. And I'm going to check those other guys out uh, that you mentioned. And I'm always looking on Etsy at people who have stuff and I'm horrible remembering names. I'm, I'm, I'm really bad about just like flagging stuff, but not really paying attention to who's doing this stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I should probably pay more attention to and, and connect and network with people. But it's so cool to put a face uh, to, to the, because I saw your post um, the other day about using sodium lamps instead of LEDs. And I was like, I was like, yes, somebody else understands the difference. <laughs> it's like, You're exactly glad someone, yeah. someone gets it. Like, uh, yes, I'm from LA and that monochromatic glow is, uh, means a lot to me for some reason. And yeah. that's when I've started making these glowing maps. I'm like, that's the color temperature I want to emulate. It feels like you're under mm-hmm. uh, one of those old buzzing street lamps. And yep. I found a, a guy on eBay who, um, was selling all these decommissioned street lamps from near San Diego, Escondido that were, oh, wow. that were there in deference to the observatory since, you know, you could filter out that very monochromatic light easily from the astronomical observation. And they swapped them all for LEDs, junked them, got one oh. off eBay for 80 bucks, uh, asked some friends to help me wire it. So rewire the ballast. So I electrocute myself. And yeah. I've been uh, having way too much fun with this. I, I bought some more. I go on eBay and buy all these used sodium lamps. And oh, that's cool. They're all like, apparently like, man, there's just no new stock. I found this guy in on AliExpress selling Chinese ones, but they're, they kind of suck. They require some goofball. They don't work with the ballast that I have. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's... Voltage is always different yeah. from overseas, yeah. But it was really fun to... Um, just create my own light box using these sodium lamps and because you can power them with the standard fluorescent ballast. And, uh, yeah, I kind of want my like platinum edition of these maps to, uh, be a lot thicker. Like right now I use very thin panel LEDs, but I'm like, hmm, how about like a real substantial box that you is user serviceable. You can always crack open the back, swap out the bulb, change the ballast, something that is transparent to the user and repairable, which is very rare in this world. That, and that attention to detail, detail is right up my alley. It's like, man, I'm, like I said, I mean, there's there's just so much that's virtual and not much that um, takes actual time to physically manifest in the real, real world. Yes. Um, or if it is, it's cheaply done, you know? So, yeah, things that don't survive disassembly. Exactly. It's funny, I talked to this guy once who was an art restorer for modern multimedia art, which is like an art restorer traditionally is like, oh, I got this oil painting, time to, you know, clean the ancient varnish off. Yeah. And his job was, well, it's 1992. Some guy made this goofball art piece with a projector or like a fluorescent bulb. And uh, people buy it. It's like any other art. It's in collectors, you know, uh, stocks and in free, hanging out in free ports and they're like well it, the projector doesn't light up anymore what do we do but how do <laughs> i like they're like well it's like some crappy projector that he got from office max in 1992 we oh can't fix it there's nothing to like we can't i d- replace it with that identical thing so we have yeah. to like ship of theseus these like art pieces uh with modern electronics in a way that like doesn't destroy their value somehow oh and wow it's like that's just a very 21st century problem. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And so I'm like, I want to ma- I want to make art or uh, design goods that like discover them in an attic 50 years from now and be like, huh, what if I can get that thing working again? And you can. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Elliot. This has been a lot of fun and I'll um, send you some of those links. And uh, yeah, I think I can, I can, I think I can help you out with some things because I do GIS all day. And I okay. filter out, you know, the usual bugs. Well, that'd be great. I, I definitely, that's, yeah, that's, um, that side of it is not my strongest uh, area. Um, I'm not sure if I have a strong area. It's just kind of, like I say, <laughs> jack of all, jack of all trades. You can it's, figure I'm a things. jack of all trades and I jack everything up. That's exactly <laughs> what I do. Hey, you can teach your, you can teach yourself <laughs> through failure, which is something a lot of people can't do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my strongest point. I can, I can persevere through failure. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's something, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, good luck with your your next uh, forearm shattering pour of epoxy. And, yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll talk soon. I'll uh, email you some links and also tell you when this episode is all edited and uploaded. Sounds good. I really appreciate it, Evan. Thank you so much. See Elliot's maps at columbiapressworks.com. That's C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A. For show notes and bonus content, visit veryexpensivemaps.com. This episode is brought to you by the Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, reports, walls, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate. I'm a cartographer, and you should make your own maps. No one wants to see dull, ugly maps. If you want to get through to your customers, you need the best cartography money can buy. The Map Consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding, PowerPoint decks, annual reports, conferences and events, your office walls. The Map Consultancy does it all. Visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today.